Now, let me talk about our message in this series. What are you waiting for? Uh, how'd you do last week doing some waiting? <laughs> you know, I, I got in some long lines on purpose. I tried to practice what I preached. I got in a slow lane. Any lane out here in San Antonio is a slow lane driving. But we're in this series and we're, series and we're actually trying to practice the spiritual discipline of patience. You know, God shapes character through the Bible by making us wait. And I said to you, boy, I hate waiting, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Do you mind if we put you on hold? Like, whatever I say is going to matter? doesn't matter. You're going on hold. It's rhetorical. It means, it's like, do you want a spanking? Nobody says, well, yeah, come to think of it, it'd be a good idea. So one of the things we're finding out is a lot of us are kind of waiting challenged in our culture. And one of the dangers we talked about last week is that we're so bad at waiting, we can make the circumstance or the situation or the relationship or whatever we're waiting for to become the ultimate, the ultimate foundation we're counting on. And we said that is a dangerous place to be. So what's the bedrock foundation you're counting on? What's the big hope you're waiting for so that when all of the little hopes and the maybe hopes and the situational hopes are all gone, when they don't pan out, you've got a bedrock to build your life on. You know, really, there are only two alternatives when you're looking for an ultimate foundation to build your life or to count on. And all I want to do in this simple closing little series message is just lay both of them out and tell you where the gospel, the good news of Jesus, lies. Then invite you, if you've never done so, to make a decision, to make a commitment, to choose the foundation you're going to build your one and only life on. That better be a good one. So uh, we're going to look at these two alternatives laid out real clearly all over the place in the Bible. One of them's in the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's what the psalmist says at one point. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In other words, I'll build my life on one of two foundations. I can trust in me or I can trust in God. That shouldn't be real difficult, huh? The first alternative means I choose to depend on my own self-sufficiency. I'll count on my own gifts, strengths, my intelligence, my ability to foresee problems, my ability to solve problems. I'll save myself by my own works, my own achievements, my career, my finances, even my good deeds or maybe a dab in religion. I'll give this alternative a little acronym. Three letters, D-I-Y. Do it yourself. And that's the way a lot of people do salvation. You know, when our kids were really small, and it was this time of year, the Christmas season, we'd buy them sometimes a more complicated present, a tricycle or a PlayStation. But one year, we gotten them something particularly complex, a small nuclear reactor, I think, and nothing in it went by the directions. You know, nothing. Tab A did not fit into slot B. 
And after hours of frustration, like one in the morning, I finally said to Cindy, do you want some help with that? (laughs) He'll get it. It's a funny thing. People who would never try do-it-yourself with their kids, toys, their car, their appliances, a vacuum cleaner, they'll try it with their own life, with their ultimate destiny on the line. And the writers of Scripture in the ancient world noticed this do-it-yourself, self-sufficiency, I can build my life on me, salvation by works, is sometimes called strategy. I love these words from Job. They're very picturesque. Though the pride of the godless man reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds. That is stuck up, isn't it? Wow. That's a striking image. He will perish forever like his own dumb. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? I, I sure, I, I, I surely he will have no respite from his craving. He cannot save himself by his treasure. Even his money can't save him. Now, I want to submit this trust in your own strength strategy. Even if you have enough money, you're, you're smart enough, bright enough, strong enough. It's stronger than ever in our day and in our culture. It's true. There's a big pull on this one. So a guy by the name of David Brooks, who teaches at Yale, says the temptation to idolize self-sufficiency and achievement has become the hallmark of our culture in America. It's so profound and brilliant. I want to read a little excerpt to you. This is from him. And see if you can recognize any of the dynamics he talks about here. So this is what David Brooks writes. I've lived much of my life in the secular culture. It is an achievement-oriented culture. It starts really early, and it's kind of crushing our kids. If you go to the elementary schools in my neighborhood, you see kids coming out at 3 in the afternoon. They've got those 80-pound backpacks on. If the wind tips them over, they look like beetles laying on their back stuck. They get picked up from school by creatures I call ubermoms who are highly successful career women who have taken time off to make sure their kids get into Harvard. You can tell the Uber moms because they actually weigh less than their children. They've got little yoga mats stapled to their hips. During pregnancy, they're taking so many soy-based nutritional formulas, babies plop out 14-pound toothless defensive linemen ready for the NFL, just boom. He goes on to say Uber dads are just as more performance-oriented as moms, cutting the umbilical cord, flashing little Mandarin flashcards at the kids, getting them ready for Harvard. And these kids turn into the junior workaholics of America. By the time they've applied to schools, they've started six companies, cured three formerly fatal diseases, and they're playing obscure sports like Frisbee golf. When I ask my students, what are you doing during spring break, they say, well, you know, I'm unicycling across Thailand while reading to lepers, that sort of thing. So we idolize self-sufficiency, we do it ourselves, and we have a great desire for fame. He goes on to say, fame used to be quite low as a value. Now it is the second most desired quality in young people. They did a study They said, would you rather be president of Harvard or Justin Bieber's personal assistant? By a three-to-one margin, people would rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant 
assistant, then president of Harvard University. He says, though to be fair, I asked the president of Harvard, and she would rather be Justin Bieber's personal <laughs> assistant. <laughs> Go figure. So in this achievement-oriented culture, a culture of people trying and striving to win success, the way I express this hunger for success is by two sets of virtues. You could call them the resume virtue or the eulogy virtue. Now, that's a profound distinction. Resume virtues are the things you bring to the marketplace that you put on a resume, like here's my IQ, here are my SAT scores, here are my degrees I've earned, here are my awards, uh, here are my uh, ladders that I've climbed, here's my network. Now, you know, you can have a really, really good resume and be a really, really bad person. You can have a really good resume and lead a really sucky life. It happens every day. Eulogy virtues are the qualities that people talk about when somebody dies. What kind of a person were they? Love, joy, humility, servanthood, generosity. So Brooks goes on to say, in my secular culture, we all know that eulogy virtues are more important. That's character. But we spend much more time on resume virtues. So all of our sense of identity, our emotion gets wrapped up in resume virtues. So they are always asking, who are you? Does your life matter? Does your life count? The writers of Scripture knew all about, I can try do-it-yourself resume salvation. I can depend on my education, my wealth, my looks, my connections, my achievements to secure my life. I can even throw in some good deeds, throw in occasional church attendance, Christmas and Easter, or a little bit of giving, or once in a while I could actually even volunteer. But a crisis is going to come at some point, and all of your degrees won't make it go away. Suffering will come. And all of your networks and all of your contacts won't stop it. An addiction will come, and all of your strength cannot deliver you. Moral failure will come, and all of the doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists in the world can't wash away the guilt that wakes you up in the morning. Aging and death will come, and judgment will come. And you and I will stand before this holy God one day, and I guarantee you he will not be impressed by my resume or yours. See, kings and warriors and wealthy folks, the rich and the poor, discover their armies, their strength, their horses, their treasures, their toys, their homes, their 401ks, their titles, their resumes cannot save them. But there's another way in Scripture. It says, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him and on those whose hope is in His unfailing love to deliver them from death. We wait in hope for the Lord. So I can give up trusting myself. I can make God my savior, my healer, my rescuer, my deliverer, my friend. The opposite of do-it-yourself salvation is grace. It is by grace you have been saved through your faith. And this is not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can brag. So we're all on common ground. This is why the Bible says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus. This is why in the Christmas story, we see two ways laid out one more time. In Luke chapter 2, a famous passage about the Christmas story starts out with these words. 
And it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Luke quite deliberately names the name Caesar Augustus. Why should all the world be taxed? Well, Caesar Augustus needed more food for his army because Caesar Augustus, who had the greatest resume in the world, who trusted in his own greatness, who was actually, believe it or not, called the savior of mankind by millions of people. That was the phrase they used about Caesar Augustus. He is the savior. And millions said that. Rome said it. You know, it said that he needed grain for his army. But a king is not saved by the size of his army, Scripture says. Meanwhile, on the other side, an angel comes to some shepherds. How many resume virtues do you think shepherds have? None. They're at the very bottom of the totem pole. They weren't even considered honest because they often let their flocks graze on anybody's land. They were often not allowed to give legal testimony in court because they were not considered to be truthful or respectable. No kid in Israel ever grew up saying, oh man, I want to be a shepherd. Nobody. Caesar Augustus made a decision all the world would be taxed. Angels came to some obscure shepherds and said, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all people. Today in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior is born. He is Messiah, the Lord. His name shall be called Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And he did. And he was born in a little manger. And he lived a perfect life. And on the cross, he died a death you and I deserve to die. So we could live a life we never deserve to live. So we could have a hope we never deserve to have. That's grace. You know, just thinking, yesterday we had over 3,000 people in this building out in the lobbies, downstairs in the NPR room for child protective services. Every Christmas since 2008, we have, with your generosity and some community sponsors, been able to take care of nearly 2,300 children that are, that's all of Bear County Child Protective Services. And they showed up with their sponsors and you couldn't move. I scratched my back, three people said thank you. It was just <laughs> jammed in here. And I, I wanna thank you for your generosity, but I, I, I noticed Brittany Triber was walking around with a, yeah, you deserve that, with a clipboard. And she's measuring and checking off everything, people, right people, sponsors, presents. So there's a lot of people doing the checking off. And I thought a lot of people have the idea God's walking around every day with his clipboard. Okay, Gloria. Hmm. Demerit. You can get off of that. Demerit. And that the idea is that, in their thinking, is that I got to get more points than demerits. Or, or, or God's not going to save me or he won't even love me today. Nothing could be further from the truth. There ain't no clipboard. I mean, this has been entirely done by someone else for you. This is hard for the flesh and pride to humble itself and realize I can't do any I can't make my sin go away I can't take my guilt go away I can't make my shame go away I can't get it off nothing will take it out then Jesus shows up and says the shedding of the blood is the remission of sin and God says I can take it away I can take it away forever and I'll never remember your sin anymore and I'll give you eternal life and it's not something you can earn for by grace are you saved through your faith in Jesus and what he did not of works what you did what you didn't do I love people say well I've never done that well I've never done that and then somebody else said I've done all that 
maybe a little more. And you're both in the same boat. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody. You know, you don't, you don't, if I miss the target an inch and you miss it six feet, we both missed it. There's no points for missing it. Only Jesus was able to f- perfectly live and keep the law. I mean, knock it off. I, we keep wanting to measure people. Well, you don't know about her past. You don't know about her. You don't know about this. Well, let's start with pride, number one. How about judgmentalism, number two, on you? I can take you down in about two, two seconds if you want to talk about sin. I mean, I don't know why we do that. This, listen, God took all the judgment, took all the sin, took the, I deserve, you're, you ought to be whipped. You des- you're right, you're right, you're right. So Jesus went to the cross and said, instead whip me, punish me. He took my judgment and yours as well. Now I'll never be judged again. I'll never, you can't be judged again, ever. I can be convicted. That's what the Holy Spirit says. You know how you spoke to your wife? Call her and tell her you're sorry. That's conviction. Condemnation says, yeah, sorry, dog. You'll never be a good husband. You're a lousy person. How dare you call yourself? That comes from the enemy. The Bible says, Romans 8, there's no condemnation to those in Christ. You have to go to church to get that. (laughs) It's the truth, sadly. It's often the truth. So, I just wanted to throw that in so you could understand this beautiful thing that we're, we're under called grace. Well, you just believe you can do it. See, here we go again. Get your fig leaves out. Cover up something. Yeah. yeah. Paul says, what? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, no, God forbid. Let's don't, let's don't live that way. He says, I don't want you to be a licentious people. But obviously, nothing I do has any effect on what Jesus did for me. That's the whole idea. It is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. It's God's goodness to me that makes me kind of sad I was a jerk today. That's conviction, see? Not condemnation. So it is the goodness of God that leads. It's not condemnation that ever made me do better. Ever. Ever. In fact, it probably makes me more stiff-necked. You think that's bad? Just watch. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So the angel said, this is the good news. Today, a Savior is born. It was almost laughable. There's a poor baby in a little manger nobody's ever heard of in a world that Caesar rules, but not a single human being on planet Earth calls Caesar Augustus Savior today. And hundreds of millions call Jesus that, and the number grows every day. Hallelujah. So I just have this one question for all of us today. How about you? Have you decided to make Jesus your Savior, your healer, your deliverer? of your life have you humbled your pride given up that self-sufficiency do it myself and confess your sin you know and ask God to forgive you and then you know may Jesus the one who heals you and rescues you comforts you guides you the one you can count on who's your friend says I'll never leave you or forsake you if not you're just doing a do-it-yourself life a do-it-yourself salvation even if you've been around church for 10 years And I know it happens. Sometimes it happens. People have been in church and they've never surrendered their life to Jesus. And I want to give you the chance to make that commitment and make it really clear today. I want to give you a picture of what it looks like to receive grace. This is from a book by a guy named Henry Nguyen. He's a great spiritual writer and teacher. And he writes about how many years he taught at Harvard and Yale on all these elite places in our culture. And he found himself where everybody is doing the do-it-yourself salvation, do-it-yourself kind of a life. 
And he found himself trying to do it as well. So he spent the last few years of his life in a really different community among people who face cognitive and physical challenges, people with learning disabilities, uh, people, people who have no resume virtues at all, no impressive titles. This isn't at Harvard. It wasn't Yale. It's a little small community for challenged people called Daybreak. And he said it was there he learned most about salvation by grace and what it means to stop trying to earn love from God and just live in it. So he tells a story in this book called Life of the Beloved that gives us a picture of what you can do to receive this simple gift today, this eternal gift. So I'm going to read what he said. Shortly before I started a prayer service, Janet, a handicapped member of our community, said, Henry, can you give me a blessing? I responded in a somewhat automatic way by tracing my thumb, the sign of the cross, on her forehead. Instead of being grateful, however, she protested vehemently. No, that doesn't work, Henry. I want a real blessing. Well, he says, I suddenly became aware of the rote quality of my response to her request. And I said, Janet, I'm sorry. Let me give you a real blessing when we're all together at the prayer service. Well, she nodded with a smile, he said. I realized something special was required. After the service, about 30 people were sitting on the floor, and I said, Janet has asked for a special blessing. She feels that she needs it now. As I was saying this, I didn't know what Janet really wanted, but Janet didn't leave me in doubt. As soon as I had spoken, she stood up and walked immediately towards me. I was wearing my long white robe with long sleeves covering my hands and my arms. Spontaneously, Janet put out her arms and put them around me and put her head against my chest. Without thinking, I covered her with my sleeves so that she vanished in the folds of my robe. As we held each other, I said, Janet, I want you to know you're God's beloved daughter. You are precious in God's sight. Your beautiful smile, your kindness to the people in this house, and all the good things you do show us what a beautiful human being you are. I know you feel a little low these days and that there is some sadness in your heart, but I want you to always remember who you are, a very special person, deeply loved by God, and all the people are here with you. As I said these words, Janet raised her hand and looked at me and had a big smile, and she really had heard what I said and obviously had received the blessing. When she went back to her chair, Jane, another handicapped woman, raised her hand and said, I want a blessing too. She stood up, and before I knew it, she had put her face against my chest. I had covered her with my robe, and after I'd spoken words of blessing to her, many more of the handicapped people followed, expressing the same desire to be blessed. The most touching moment, however, he said, came when one of my assistant staff members, a 24-year-old student, raised his hand and said, hey, Henry, what about me? Sure, I said, you can come. And I put my arms around him and said, John, you're God's beloved child. Your presence is a joy. When things are hard and life is burdensome, always remember, always remember, you are loved with an everlasting love. That's grace. You don't bring a resume. It's just grace. So what about you? Have you ever done that? You can come to Jesus as simply as Janet and these others came to Henry Newen. Jesus is waiting for you. He's been waiting ever since the cross. And he'll put those big arms around you and forgive your brokenness, your sin, 
anything about you and give you grace and actually take up residence in your heart. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.